Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Guess what? Mm, what? I mean, we had a great live show in Montreal recently. Don't know if you heard. It was great. It was the last two episodes of this podcast. And we're going to have another great live show in just a few weeks. Yes. Yeah, we're coming to Vancouver. Oh, my God, Sandy. How excited are you? I'm pretty excited because it means that, well, I'm going to be taking a West Coast road trip because I'm going to drive there. Um, and that'll be fun. <laughs> that'll be fun for me. Uh, and I'm really excited to to be in Vancouver and, um, and see you again and have uh, a great conversation because this last one, I couldn't have asked for anything better. We had such good conversation. And I've actually, I've been getting a lot of really great feedback from uh, from our last live show. So thanks to everybody who reached out to let us know that uh, those discussions were meaningful to you. And I think some of them might come up again today a little bit because we do have to say some things about Twitter. But mm-hmm. Although I think it'll be more about... Uh... What like what the hell is going on? A little less philosophical, maybe a little bit more uh, specific. Um, this is the first time we're announcing the live show on an episode. So Vancouver and any anyone that wants to take a trip, folks, get your tickets because even though we haven't announced it yet on an episode, uh, we have been sharing it in our social media channels, and we already have a third of the tickets sold. So Wait, they're seven dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, didn't this just go live like a day ago? Yeah, I haven't I haven't mentioned that to you. <laughs> I haven't even had a chance to take a look to make sure that there was a copy edit. What the hell? <laughs> okay, well, I mean, thanks for the support, everyone. That's really cool. Damn. Shit, get your tickets. Oh, my God. Get your tickets. <laughs> yeah. It is at the Maritime Labor Center on Tuesday the 29th of November. So it is coming up in three weeks. It's going to be fun. I cannot promise that we're going to be recording this one. I This is not a place that has a sophisticated sound setup. So <laughs> we're going to see what we can do. Um, so just a heads up to folks, we might not be able to record it. So that means you really want to be there. And if you have any questions at all, like please let us know, but don't delay. You don't want to miss getting tickets to this. Tickets are $7 and you will find the Eventbrite um, on our social media pages. Yeah, or just search uh, Sandy Nora at Eventbrite. And we got some people to thank too. Ooh, yay. I love being grateful. (laughs) Thank you so much to everybody that's been donating for the last little while. We haven't been able to thank folks because of our uh, two last episodes having been the live show. And then also um, we have this other problem. Thank you so, so much to the following amazing fans of Sandy and Nora. Dominic, Lasha, Allison, and Ryan. Rhea, someone, Jagris, and Steven. Jerome, Michael, Emma, David, and Kylie. Thank you all so much. And to everybody who likes, shares, tells the friends about the podcast, uh, we would be nothing without you. Okay, so starting this week... With Christian Freeland Watch. Yes, Christopher Freeland Watch. Okay, so um, I don't want to spend almost any time on this this time, but uh, there's a couple of things I want to know. I know, there's so much more to discuss. So, more to discuss. <laughs> so really, really small Christian Freeland Watch. Okay, two things for me. Uh, this whole, uh, her family is de- unsubscribed from Disney Plus uh, to save some money. Did you see this? Oh, no, I did not. That sounds really hokey, though. Is this Is this like some sort of thing to be like... I I am with you people. I'm just like you. I've had to make really hard decisions. I've unsubscribed from Disney Plus. Is that what that is? It's literally that. Yeah. So that was what she said. So um, it's I mean, so fucking predictable and dumb. It like, sucks. I didn't even see the new. I was news, and I was able to say it uh, without having seen it. So that's great. Yeah, it really sucks. So uh, you know, if you're poor, uh, it's because of your Disney Plus subscription. So just uh, ditch it. And you'll be middle class. The second thing is that her name's being thrown around uh, to be the next head of NATO, which is not a big surprise. And I think that that is probably now more likely than her taking a different role, a higher role in the government of Canada. So I'm keeping my eye on that. But Sandy, I know you have your own Christopher Freeland Watch updates. I sure do. And just 
before I get there, because I, I really hate this idea of like, oh, my God, just unsubscribe. Stop drinking coffee from Starbucks and you you, too, will be healthily middle class. Like people should know the people who are best at budgeting are the people who do not have enough money in their lives because they are surviving by stretching dollars. And it is hard to do that. So it is doubly insulting to tell someone um, just unsubscribe from Disney Plus because one, they're probably not subscribed to Disney Plus in the first place if they're you know really struggling and in poverty. But two, that doesn't help anything. And trying to suggest that it's your fault that you're poor <laughs> instead of the way that the system works, um, uh, you know, as though the the wealthiest people in the world uh, and the most privileged in our country, like Christian Freeland, are truly being like, eh, let me look at all of my subscriptions. Yeah, like total bullshit. Okay. So the other Christian Freeland watch is, you know, she had this economic update where she she made some announcements. And one of those really big announcements, I'm sure, affects so many people who are listening to this podcast, which is that the liberal government has announced a N end to interest on student loans. Now, their language and the language that was repeated often in the news was that this is a permanent end to interest on student loans. And I really reject all of the media that did repeat that government spin to say that it's permanent. I mean, nothing's per like, did they put it into the, did they change the Canadian constitution? Uh, but even if they did, uh, unless they even did if they that. did, they can, they can section 33. I know it. there's something called a notwithstanding clause that could get rid of it, but unless they changed the charter and the Canadian constitution, <laughs> there's nothing that's permanent. Any, any government could later come in and uh, eradicate uh, this new provision and re-implement uh, interest on student loans. So that's important to know. It's important to, to think about that and to cut through the bullshit. Is it good that, uh, that interest is uh, no longer on these loans? Absolutely. Like the government should not have been making money off of the poorest, the people who could not afford their education in the first place. That's... Um, immoral uh, to do that, especially when that money is coming from the public purse. It is, it is absolutely a tax on the poor. It's an extra tax, an extra revenue source for the government um, on the poorest people who are attempting to attend post-secondary uh, education. So the fact that that interest is gone is great. What they've also implemented is income contingent loans. So you won't have to start making payments on your loans until such time that you make a certain amount. I think it was $40,000 that was announced. Now, that is very dangerous. As we know from previous cases, specifically in Australia, um, that becomes a justification to increase tuition fees uh, and to intensify the privatization of post-secondary education for the provinces and for institutions who don't give a shit about this stuff, because they then get to say, well, you know, we can increase tuition fees as much as we want because uh, students don't need to pay until they start to make an amount in which it becomes fair for them to pay or whatever. And the danger in that, of course, is that when the conservatives do come back to power and re-implement interest on student loans, because trust me, that's going to happen then we have the situation where um, tuition fees are far, far more and the interest is going to uh, generate far, far more revenue for the government and people who are poor are paying far, far, far more uh, in, uh, in, in costs for education than everyone else. So, I mean, pay attention to this stuff. The, the real, like a real benefit, especially at a time when the you know, American government is canceling portions of student loans. Like it, it should like there should be a huge uh, movement to to, you know, turn these loans into grants and forgive the loans. That's the only way that you can make these sorts of things permanent. Um, but here we are uh, in this land where 
the government says something's permanent and we just uh, report it as such. And there we are. So that's what Christian Freeland's been doing. It's, again, another example of Christian Freeland uh, being the face of something that uh, is, uh, you know, the government is expecting to be received very, very positively. And in this case, it was received very, very positively. And uh, we all know why. <laughs> it is interesting because there's a minister responsible for this, but she is, it was a part of the economic update, was able to be the one to announce this. And, um, you know, a lot of people asked, like, you know, doesn't it mean that people who are already higher income, who go to higher education, then get like a, a, tr a wealth transfer from poor people who can't go to higher education at all? And I think, you know, it's really important for people to remember that thanks to loans, a low income person who goes to university will find themselves paying up to three times more money for the same degree as someone who was able to pay for the whole thing up front. And that inequity is built in the system because of loans and because of the interest on those loans. So great step forward, not at all permanent. Students need to be understanding that if they're not going to fight to keep this, then it will be done. It will be undone. And and further than fighting to keep it, then, you know, as Sandy just said, you have to fight to eliminate the loans entirely. And that's a very fun fight. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the meat of this episode. So we got two things we want to talk about. And I think let's talk with, about the frivolous thing first, and then we will get into what's really, really important. Sandy, Twitter has completely changed. Have you seen it? Uh, has it completely changed? And yes, I have seen it. Despite the fact that I'm never on Twitter, I'm always on Twitter. Okay, so <laughs> despite the fact that I never tweet anymore, although I did tweet this weekend, da, 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 da. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I do go on there to check what's going on, to see what's trending, to see what um, everybody from, you know, uh, who's who in pop culture to what's go going on in the um, Ontario Poly uh, um, hashtag to see what's going on. Um, and so I have been in there and Nora, and not much has changed. I mean, yeah, sure. Apparently there's a new billionaire in charge <laughs> or whatever, yeah. uh, a new person who like, you know, is immoral and hates workers and whatever in charge, but Things haven't really changed. I mean, I have started to get a lot of, I don't know if anyone else is experiencing this, but as someone who doesn't tweet a lot, I, I sometimes get very weird notifications, which I guess are like Twitter trying to get me to come back to the platform. And it now gives me a notification every time anything Elon Musk happens, which is weird because it's not <laughs> like, it's not like I've ever searched Elon Musk on the site. I haven't. I haven't been reading Elon Musk news, so it's not like cookies, like trying to bring me like, this is what you want, Elon Musk. I, I was just like, did he like turn on notifications about himself to everyone who's like not using the site enough? Because that's weird. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, I, I haven't gotten those, but I do know those push notifications that you're talking about because I manage a couple of accounts that like, you know, I'm out of them for a period of time. And then I come back and I get this like, oh, see what these people are saying. You're like, OK. Um, yeah, I... I like like Musk is a, a shithead and him walking in there and firing everybody. It was kind of hilarious because it's like, oh, OK, <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> but what has been very confusing to me is how quickly people have shifted to this narrative that like there is something to be saved or protected, like as if Twitter of a month ago wasn't shit. <laughs> and. I I don't understand what that's about. I don't really understand. It seems like people really need to have like a North Star. Like they really need to have something that they can orient their politics towards. And now that you've got like corporations like GM fighting with um, like an evil supervillain like Musk, it's like, oh, my God, this is so confusing. Like what side do I pick? And then people are kind of falling on the side of, oh, my God, they just got rid of all the moderators. Oh, my God, they just got rid of all of the people that... And it's like that what that this like this platform was shit. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what your experience was on Twitter, but it, it wasn't it hasn't been good for me anyway. Like from what I've been seeing has been good. And since this has all happened, I'm seeing way more like average people that I follow having tweets that go viral. And I'm so fascinated by this. And I can't tell if it's like, 
just because I'm paying attention or because politics are going like they're, they're kind of going crazy right now in Canada. And so obviously there's a lot of stuff that people want to retweet. Um, but I've also noticed a marked drop in trolls responding to me. And I'm just like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, I think I think I've noticed a couple of interesting things having, you know, um, me being the the sleeper Twitter user that I am. <laughs> one is that uh, one is what we talked about uh, on the podcast uh, when, while we were in Montreal, which is that you see the absurdity of having like the public square be in private hands. Like it doesn't make any sense because people who really are engaging with this as though it is just like this neutral platform for which, you know, you're like getting your milk crate standing on top of it and using your megaphone to like yell to the, to the masses are really feeling like, Oh no, that my milk crate is in danger and someone's breaking my megaphone, but it was always broken. (laughs) Like there was never Mm -hmm. a way that Twitter was neutral. And the idea interacting with it like it is, is warping um, how we interact with one another and how we think about one another's ideas and how we are able to debate, to debate. And we've discussed that before. So that's, that's one, like it's, it's absurd. And so people feel this, this deep threatening of like, oh man, Elon Musk is coming and he's going to change our public square. But but the the real problem is that that we don't actually have a public square <laughs> at all, really anymore, um, because so much of this stuff is uh, mediated by forces like Twitter. No, exactly. Like there's this this pining for like the early days of the internet when it wasn't controlled by billionaires and all this stuff, and it's like. Jack Dorsey was not much better than Musk. Like, sure, it's terrible that we now have a vanity project running this whole fucking platform. But people need to get perspective on what has happened. And like for every person that is now experiencing a different kind of oppression under Musk. And of course, like I've seen uh, there have been accounts, one one uh, author in particular who had written um, a, a piece for The Atlantic criticizing Musk has had their account um, pirated by a, a crypto uh, currency thing, and and the, the crypto account was was publishing from her account for a while, and it doesn't look like her account's not restored. So like that's very bad. But then I think of all my friends who've had their accounts literally suspended for like going after Nazis online. So I think that people need to really be comfortable in a space where it's like, this platform is chaotic. It's not good. It's not it's not on the balance of things good. It's on the balance of things not good. But Maybe it's actually okay that we've lost some of the moderation that we've been dealing with for the last number of years because it was opaque. It favored certain accounts over other accounts. And by favored certain accounts, I mean, like, people who are, like, VIPs. And it's just like, fuck that. Like, that sucks. And maybe maybe it's going to get worse under Musk, like, in that way. Maybe it'll favor the worst people. But fuck, like... It owes us nothing. <laughs> it's, it owes us nothing. We are freely giving them all of our thoughts and ideas and our actions and our work and all this stuff, and they're profiting from it, and it owes us nothing because that is the stage of capitalism that we're in right now. Entirely. The other two things that I've noticed is, one, you know, there's been all of these folks who are like, ah, did, did a little bit of research, found out that people have increased their use of the N-word on the platform because of Elon Musk coming through. And it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a useful um, uh, expenditure of your time. Like, I just, I don't know if that is the thing to do. Like, maybe maybe that's useful in, you know, documenting this time, but that shouldn't be the thing that occupies all of our time, like the people who want to be speaking freely, there's people who want to be um, discussing ideas on Twitter. It's not actually that useful to count how people who hate other people uh, are using this particular platform in relation to this particular man. It's not useful. <laughs> like we can think about how white supremacists and people are using the internet in relation to how the internet is controlled by private sources and individuals like billionaires who are controlling the internet. 
But, you know, the change from yesterday to today, there's nothing to me that's like a big policy change or shift or anything like that. Because guess what? We were experiencing that sort of level of anti-blackness and misogyny on Twitter before. And as Nora said, that content moderation was generally shit before. And like they had to be dragged into it, kicking and screaming. Uh, And it is going to uh, remain shit because they don't actually care because that sort of stuff results in clicks and it helps um, get eyes onto the platform. So that's another piece. And then I've seen, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's been these people who have been trying to take a sort of identity politic approach to this. Have you seen this? stuff, Nora, that they're like, they're yeah. like, all you white people who are saying you're going to leave the platform, just note that black Twitter will probably be staying because black people are used to being mistreated in, in, uh, in the, in the public. And, and they, they have always had to deal with this sort of stuff and, and white people always cut out. And I'm just like, you guys, this is a private platform. This is not this is not the public arena. Like this is a very weird thing to try to say, you know, you should stay on you should stay making sure that this is a money maker for this you know, this billionaire who owns this thing because other people are experiencing hate on it. Like what? This isn't like someone leaving a geographical space or a group of people leaving a geographical space, um, say, uh, you know, a white flight situation uh, from a community, which then results in a community getting less than uh, the communities outside of them because they become uh, a more black community that the government doesn't care about. That's not what this is. This isn't like we're not dealing with um, public uh, you know, rights and what people are owed, as you put it. This is this is like we are the raw materials for somebody to make lots and lots of money. If people leave, that's on the whole good. Yet, <laughs> <laughs> like, and people shouldn't stay in order to like as some sort of like weird fealty. Um, to a misunderstanding of how identity politics works. It's just all very bizarre. (laughs) And you know what? Uh, If you're like me, then just stay Uh, anyway, (laughs) because... Yeah, stay in shitpost like Nora. Because <laughs> it's fun. I mean, it's 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 interesting because I've seen a lot of people be like, oh, my God, this is my only like Twitter is the reason that I have my career. Twitter is the, the has democratized getting book contracts. I've seen a lot of people say that, like, if it wasn't for Twitter, I wouldn't have gotten the contacts and broken into this industry because I'm not related to anybody. Uh, Twitter's given me an audience. Uh, I'm It's the only way I push up my materials. And I mean, like, that's all true for me. Like, I, I, that's all totally, totally, totally true for me. Um, but I think we forget that like it's taking a lot of space that we would be otherwise using in other useful ways for ourselves. <laughs> like it is not like like I, I personally, me, uh, Nora, who, you know, was first contacted by a book uh, editor through Twitter. Um, that's not that's not my key to success. It's not because of this platform. Um, now. What I what I think people are saying is that they're worried that there's no other spaces to be able to have these kinds of conversations and and connect directly with people who are more or less VIPs or maybe there are total VIPs. Um, and, yeah, that might be sad if we lose that in Twitter. But I mean, also, it's not real, <laughs> folks, <laughs> like it's one of those things that, you know, maybe maybe your favorite artist liked a tweet that you made about them. And like, that's cool. And you say that in your screen caps and you're going to show that to your grandkids someday. But something else will come like these. Nothing is permanent. Nothing is permanent. Certainly not on the Internet. Nothing is permanent. And uh, I feel like people need to, like, step back on the romanticism, the 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 over like overly thankful kind of feeling towards Twitter and just recognize that it's like, well, this has been a thing that has existed that we have been on. Like, that's what it is. (laughs) It's a thing that exists. And um, and on the balance of things, it's actually far more negative than positive, like across the board, 100 percent. But the positives are so great that it keeps us there. The positives are the memes, are the contacts, are the conversations, are the friends that we've met. 
and something will replace it. If, if Elon Musk literally tomorrow unplugs the fucking mainframe and everything disappears, we will find something else. It's probably not going to be Mastodon based on everybody's comments about how Mastodon's going. But we'll find something else because this is not a very complicated technology and people want something like that. So I feel like everyone should chill. It's not the end of the world. It might be the end of Twitter. Who the fuck knows? Who the fuck cares? It's a fucking internet. I don't know. I I, I, I feel like so uh, agnostic, (laughs) ambivalent about the end of Twitter that I'm just kind of like, eh. And of course, people are asking me all the time, all the time, right? No, my God, no, are you going to pay eight bucks for verified? It's like, no, why the fuck would I do that? (laughs) So ambivalent. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And the one thing that I think that is going to be really good is that if Twitter does go downhill from here, then maybe it does give us um, the catalyst that we need for a conversation about the public square and where the public square belongs in a digital age and how to build it. Because... I think we do need that innovation and maybe Twitter is in the way of us thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. It takes up a lot of our fucking time and space. And my God, I mean, how many, how many relationships have I fucking not had because I've been spending too much time on Twitter or, I mean, one of the questions that keeps me up at night, if I actually was ever kept up at night, which I'm not, um, is like how many people think that I'm a complete asshole and then meet me in real life and go, why are you like that, that online? And it's like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Twitter encourages the worst of us. Uh, So something else happened. So you want to hear about the tweet? Do you want to hear about the tweet that I made this weekend? Yeah, of course I do. Of course. Yes, yes, yes. So it was in response to um, a, a quote that the Ontario government lawyer made at the Labor Relations Board this weekend, uh, where the uh, Labor Relations Board of Ontario is having a hearing to determine the legality of uh, the strike, which we'll, we'll talk about. If you haven't heard about it, you probably have, but we'll talk about it. So the lawyer says this. Okay, are you ready for the quote? It's so good. Okay. In their argument that the strike um, that education workers have taken is illegal, justification quote is by Farina Murji, a collective agreement is a collective agreement is a collective agreement. I'm sorry, what? That that's the quote. A collective agreement is a collective agreement <laughs> is a collective agreement. Basically saying that if a collective agreement is in place, even one that a government imposes on a union, then it's in place and there, there cannot be a strike. Right. So a collective agreement is a collective agreement is a collective agreement. So I said, but is a collective agreement a collective agreement if it is not collectively Ooh, agreed upon? Wow, that's very good. Chew on that. That's Nora. really good. That's a, that's a really good line. That's a good line. Yeah. So you, yes, thank you. you have plunged that. us into a constitutional crisis conversation. <laughs> yes. Well, I think the, the government of Ontario has uh, plunged us into the, this. This is like we're in uh, a, a pretty shitty uh, place right now in Ontario uh, with respect to the government invoking the notwithstanding clause to prevent education workers from going on strike. We're also in an amazingly inspiring place right now because education workers said, fuck you and went on strike anyway. Yeah. They sure did. So let's back up. Folks will remember last week I started the episode with a bit of an overview on what was going on. Uh, It was not legislation yet. It had not yet passed this Bill 28. And um, so here's like the very quick overview. And then we're going to explain to you all why this really fucking matters. Um, So uh, educational workers in Ontario, they have not received significant pay increases at all in more than a decade. They want started bargaining at 11 percent. Bargaining is one of those things where you go in with your best offer and then you are usually prepared to whittle it down to some amount that you will accept, depending on how open the other side is to bargaining. And so the other side in this case, of course, the Ontario government, the Ministry of Education, they're not open at all. And um, bargaining broke down and the the union said, well, we're going to walk out. We're going on strike on Friday. This was of last week. And so I think they put, that was Monday or Tuesday they announced that. Like there was a lot of time, right, from Tuesday to Friday to say we're going on strike. That's a tactic that then management, the bargaining table, can come back and say, okay, we see that you want to go on strike. We see that more than 90% of your members have voted to go on strike. You're serious about this. We have to take this seriously. That's a tactic, right? And so most of the times when a union says we're about to go on strike, we've got an 80 or 90% strike mandate. 
that just gets things moving. And then like sometimes you can actually reach an agreement before a single day of strike happens. What the Ontario government did, though, was impose a collective agreement on the union and a preemptive you are not allowed to strike policy. And so the right to strike in Canada is enshrined in the Constitution thanks to a case uh, that was brought about by the Saskatchewan Federation of Labour. And this was decided in 2015. Now, sometimes when a contract uh, or when back to work legislation is tabled, and that means that would be legislation ending a strike, actually all the time, it always has a provision that says, and therefore... Um, with the strike ending, we will move to binding arbitration. So a negotiation with a third party where the decisions of the third party are binding. And that usually will have give and take, you know, some individual saying, okay, uh, the workers get this, management gets that, blah, blah, blah. Now, in this legislation, there was no binding arbitration. It was literally just breaking the strike, which is absolutely unconstitutional. And the government knows it's unconstitutional. And so they invoked Section 33 of the Constitution, which opts out legislation from being tested as constitutional, probably because the government knows it's not constitutional. That's where we're at. Does that all make sense? (laughs) Was that a good summary? (laughs) I think that's a great summary. And I think it's um, a good idea to just try to let our listeners know which sections of the charter were suspended as a result of Bill 28. So the bill suspends... Sections 2, 7, and 15. Um, Do you want me to read to you uh, what that means? Yes, I know what that means because I am a nerd, but please. Amazing. Okay, so section 2 is fundamental freedoms. So that (laughs) suspends the freedom of conscience, the freedom of religion, the freedom of thought, freedom of belief, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, freedom of peaceful assembly, freedom of association, and uh, the religious neutrality of the state. So that's suspended. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Section seven, which is the right to life, liberty, and the security of the person. Mm -hmm. And section 15, which is equal treatment before and under the law and equal protection and benefit of the law without discrimination. I think it is important for people to understand exactly what it is that the Ontario government needs to suspend in order to prevent uh, these education workers from going on strike um, and in order to to stop uh, bargaining and to to violate the the constitutionally enshrined uh, Supreme Court protected right to strike in Canada like, uh, those sections of uh, the charter, they're not light. And they are making um, those suspensions uh, like in a kind of willy nilly way and claiming that they don't have the funds in order to do what the education workers are ask- asking. At the same time, having what other parties are stating is a $44 billion um, that are put away in uh, contingency funds, a reported $2 billion surplus, $2.2 billion surplus, uh, in addition to trying to bribe parents by giving everyone these payments. Uh, If you haven't heard, in Ontario, uh, parents got like literal checks from the government to help them take their children to tutoring Um, uh, rather than uh, putting this money in the hands of education workers where it should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is uh, this is really incredible. It's incredible on so many different levels. And um, and we're in the middle of the fight. I mean, by the time you hear this on Tuesday, things have already happened. There's already been a day of strike across the province of Ontario on Monday. You'll know how that worked. Um, there's other strikes happening too. Metrolinx, the public-private partnership that manages Go Transit. Those workers uh, represented by the Amalgamated Transit Union, they are going on strike as of tomorrow morning, uh, which is very exciting. And then there's also discussions brewing, uh, spearheaded by the Ontario Federation of Labour, obviously with CUPE, which is the union that represents these educational workers. Workers, uh, to have a, a full province-wide general strike on the 14th. Very exciting. And why is it this that's getting people to do this kind of action? Well, it's because this is an incredible attack on our fundamental rights and freedoms. The, go- the governments have always been able to invoke Section 33. The notwithstanding clause has always been part of the Constitution. And in fact, you know, it's been kind of talked about as if it's like this part of the Constitution that 
you know, has just was never supposed to be used like this. It's just there that decorum or um, the fear of a public backlash at the polls, uh, specifically not public opinion polling, but like the voting polls would stop a government from using Section 33. But it's the mortar that holds together the Constitution. Like it, without Section 33, the, gov- the, the, the provinces would not have agreed to the Constitution. And so it's this really funny situation where our entire Constitution is held together by the promise the governments can, whenever they'd like, suspend the Constitution. Like, is there anything more Canadian than that? That the fucking glue holding together our Constitution is this fucking escape hatch. Now, governments have not used Section 33 very often. In Quebec, they used it all the time. (laughs) I think they Section 33 to almost every piece of legislation for like a decade and a half just to be like, fuck you, Canada, Uh, which is cool, actually. I I like that. I think that's a that's a cool thing to do. (laughs) But more recently, the the, the cases that have had Section 33 applied to it are, are, are much rarer and much higher profile. And so you know, it's been invoked twice by Doug Ford, though only used once. He invoked it to try and shrink city councils uh, in the province, but didn't actually need to use it. And then, of course, uh, Francois Legault has used it twice, um, in both cases to limit minority rights. So with Bill 21 and religious symbols in uh, pu- some public sector jobs, so teaching, policing and, and judges and uh, crown prosecutors. And uh, Law 96, which is uh, changing some of the uh, aspects of the province uh, policy on bilingualism. Now, those have gotten a lot of tension as being like, whoa, 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 like this is not how it's supposed to be used. And um, that's, I mean, not totally true because, again, it's there. It's there to like if it's not supposed to be used, why the fuck is it there? Right. Like it just hasn't been used. And so what does it mean that now we have this government that had this incredible majority that seems to think that they can do this and not piss off? enough people to unelect them. Now, they're also riding high off of that victory, so they've got four years to turn around whatever they need to. Um, But if this stays, and if the unions lose, and if the QP workers are forced back to work with a contract that they had no say in, that is the end of not only the, the modern labor relations regime that have governed that has governed this this country since 1946 but that is also the reminder that our rights can be removed at the whim of any government at any time that's really that's really wild yeah it's really really wild and i think you know you and i have talked on this podcast before about just what a a, a shitty deal um workers uh public sector workers even private sector workers have gotten um over the last like decade or so it's been really crap and we have been kind of wondering why there hasn't been a general strike um i mean if you listen to the entire compendium that is this podcast you'll probably hear us wonder about it not less than a dozen times (laughs) uh we've talked about wildcat strikes and we've talked about general strikes. This is not quite a wildcat strike, I don't think, but it, it it's the spirit of one to refuse from the government um, these rules that say you must, um, if you want to um, denote your displeasure about the way that we are doing things, that you have to do it at a certain time in a certain place in a certain way. The adherence to that has left people in a really dire place. Uh, as Nora explained, and as we've explained on the podcast before, uh, the many of the workers who we're talking about here who have seen an effective wage freeze since 2010. It's like a wage freeze since 2010, plus another implemented public sector wage freeze via um, uh, legislation, Bill 125, plus... This refusal to to bargain in good faith with uh, with these workers, plus the insult to injury of um, you know having this extra money in the pot, like knowing us knowing that you have this extra money in the pot, kicking out MPPs out of the house who are um, pointing out the absurdity of uh, of the of the government. It's it's really really bad, and so this is. Um, in fact, the perfect response, um, the most rational response, um, is to continue to strike in the face of, of these laws um, that only really have uh, the, the sort of power that they have if we respect them. And uh, quite frankly, uh, you know, 
workers should have stopped respecting the way that this government has been treating them a long time ago. And I'm, I'm glad that education workers are saying, no, fuck this. And I really hope that uh, uh, come Monday, you know, we'll see on Tuesday that when this strike happens, that people are not crossing picket lines and people are joining the fight. And in fact, talking to their own uh, labor setup, like if you if you were in if you're in a union right now, you should be talking to with your union about how you can join and support this strike, because as Nora said, this is like a this is a big deal, um, a, a trampling of our rights, and shifting the, the the possibilities for what happens in the future in any public sector uh, negotiation. Um, and even, you know, private sector negotiations that affect the public, because that 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 is something that the government could act on. Um, so, you know, this is it's not just about education workers and what they're going through, but this is, um, you know, uh, they're the first to experience what the Ford government is um, clearly saying that they would do again and again. Other provinces are, I'm sure, watching this very closely as they've had to deal with, um, you know, struggles with with public sector workers as well. And like, let's again not forget that this government um, is very, very supportive of big business and handing over uh, financial benefits to big business and to their friends and uh, at at the expense of of these workers. And so again, if you are a part of a union um, and your union isn't talking about this, uh, please, you know, um, make sure that your union is talking about this. Start up a conversation, contact your steward, um, see what you can do to get your union um, behind the fight. So if there is going to, if we're, you know, um, taking to the streets on November 14th in a general strike, um, you should try to get your union to be there. It sh- it, this is like an emergency situation for workers of the province and beyond. Yes. Yes, it is. And like the repercussions cannot be understated. No, cannot be overstated. I never know how that works. I'll just say you can't, can't be, overstated. be too overstating on the, on the repercussions of this. Um, so like one unraveling the labor piece, like, I mean, I'm critical of, of, of a, of a labor relations model that constricts workers ability to do things legally, like walk off the job whenever they want, right? That's, that's when we say what a wildcat is, is walking off the job whenever they want. That's not normal. That's not the case everywhere in the world that has this tiny limited period of time where you can walk off the job. Uh, that is very specific to Canada that forms the bedrock of modern labor relations. And that is a compromise. And the compromise is to allow the bosses to not have to deal with people walking off the job and to give workers the protected right to, at the time of negotiations, when a collective agreement is in bargaining, you have the right to walk off the job, right? It's like a, it's like a really basic human right. Like you've got a right to not fucking work. You have a right with all the people in your workplace to say, fuck you, fuck this. We're not fucking working until you meet these demands. That's a right. And so if this is going to crumble, I mean, that means that that means a lot of things will change. And like the radical in me is like, sweet, that's great. Like things will fucking change and people will have to be more radical. And that's awesome. The problem is, of course, that our social movements are so damaged that I'm not sure that they're going to be able to take the baton and, and run forward in a radical direction because things are so broken right now. So this whole process right now that is being led by CUPE, uh, and, and and you can see the solidarity that folks at the OFL have built with folks at like Six Nations, for example, present at the CUPE education workers rallies in Toronto, uh, reaching out across, even across to, to unions that are not within the so-called, not so-called, like I don't believe it, but what they call it, the House of Labor. So Unifor, which has left the federations, still very present, still like giving money. The British Columbia Teachers Federation offering a million dollars in strike support funds for these workers. I mean, this is what it's going to take. And so regardless of what happens with the future of labor relations in this country, country, uh, either they get restored because this whole thing gets gets beaten down and no politician tries to do this again for the next 20 years, or the whole thing become like collapses. Regardless of the direction, we need solidarity and we need people 
to be working together strategically in labor negotiations. And so that is something to really pay attention to. The second part of all this, though, is an ideological crusade of the Conservative Party of the province of Ontario. No, that's not what they're called. They're called the Progressive Conservatives. But anyway, to destroy education. And this is something that anybody who was in Ontario, uh, in school in Ontario, like Sandy and I were during the 1990s and the 2000s, will remember the fight that Mike Harris waged on the educational system. And it was really an attempt to destroy the educational system, but they they, they hollowed out certain parts of it such that uh, knowing that, you know, once the liberals come back in, they're not going to make fundamental fixes to the system. They might add some more money, but they're not going to, they're not going to undo the, 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 the worst of the policy elements that we saw previous governments do. And so here we have these guys back. They are raging ideologues. They absolutely oppose public school and they are going to try and defund the system. So giving parents a money, a check to say, here, here, you know, go to Kumon, go to fucking math gymnastics or whatever the fuck these, these private for-profit learning companies are, is a direct attack on public education and on the workers themselves that are actually there to help students get through the struggles of learning math or reading or writing. Because, like, who are we talking about here? We're talking about educational assistants, by and large. We're also talking about library techs and custodians and other workers. But by and large, we're talking about educational assistants. And so, like, this is also an attack on public education, a fundamental attack on public education. So we have an attack on, on labor organizing and labor the labor negotiations regime in Canada, not just Ontario. We have an attack on Ontario's public education system, which, of course, will have reverberations across the, the, the country. And we have this incredible use of the notwithstanding clause, this attack on our freedom to gather, our freedom to associate, and our freedom to tell the government to go to fucking hell. I, it's... It's it's tremendous, actually. It's a it's a really tremendous moment in history. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, um, as you say, this is what it's going to take. And also for everyone who is taking these um, these sort of really massive actions to support the workers in Ontario and the workers in Ontario themselves, like you really have to think about um, the pressure being here for the long haul. Because, again, as Nora mentioned at the beginning of us talking about this, this is year one of a majority government that the Conservatives um, can exploit. They think that people aren't going to remember this come, uh, you know, 2026, when the next election will likely be. But you know, if if the pressure gets hard enough, if if shutting down the province is intense enough, you could force an election. Actually, you could take down the government like it yep. would just take a commitment and a, a level of solidarity that we haven't seen in a while in the province. But I really do hope does exist. You know, I've been really heartened to see how many people it seems are like. Um, so obviously on the right side of this, like watching the the news and uh, the news, like seemingly approaching random people to ask them about how they're feeling about this and parents being like, this is this is bullshit. And not just because my kids won't be in class, but because the government is bullshit, like n seeing that people are on the right side of this, having that level of public support innately, it, you know, that doesn't that doesn't come around every day. That is uh, amazing. And that needs to be um, exploited. And it needs to, you need to make sure that you continue to have that level of support, continue to do the education that needs to be done, the mass education that needs to be done so that people understand how important this is. And again, it, it, this is going to be a long haul thing. If people are thinking that this is just going to be one rally on uh, November 14th and then it's over, uh, that's that's not what it is. If this government is what I think it is, they're they're going to be in this for for the long haul, which means that we have to be in it for the long haul, which means if you're going to a support rally, an emergency rally, uh, whether it was the emergency rally last week or if you're supporting a picket line this week um, or if you're going to the general um, strike that's going to be called next week or if you're you join joining some of the unions in Quebec that say that they are coming to Ontario to support, like, you know, make sure that you're, it's just not a one-off thing. This is, this is probably going to be a long haul fight and it's exactly what's needed. And again, it could take the government down, which 
I mean, fuck this government. They're really fucking us. They deserve to be taken down. We can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to also mention one other announcement that the Ford government has made, because I think that if we see these things as disjointed, we might not understand the fuller kind of ideological drive behind this government. But, you know, Sandy, you talked about how they are very close to rich people. They like to enrich their friends. This whole announcement that they are going to destroy the Greenbelt in uh, in the GTA, in the greater Toronto area. Uh, and so for pe- people that don't know, the Greenbelt is like an area of protected farmland and wetland that 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 goes across the entire Golden Horseshoe, basically, that that, that whole area that's around Lake Ontario in the in the greater Toronto area. And what they've done is, you know, some so city councils or regional councils have decided what the boundaries of their city limits are, because if they don't do that, developers will just keep buying and buying and buying and buying up farmland and then just putting up the shittiest fucking houses possible. And then you just have like this incredible amount of sprawl everywhere, which is already describing not too terribly how the GTA looks. And so, you know, uh, Hamilton and Halton, for example, Hamilton City Council worked very hard to define their boundaries and say, we're not going to grow past these boundaries to protect farmland or wetlands or whatever. Halton region, which is the region that has, I mean, this is where I'm from. We've got Oakville and Burlington on the south. You've got Milton in the middle. And then in the north, you've got Georgetown. Each of these places have had massive growth. I mean, Georgetown's doubled in size in the last 20 years. Milton has tripled in size. Um, but but the regional council has still put boundaries on how much further they can grow. And the Ford government has just said, fuck your decisions. Like, it's open for business. And I think that, like, we need to see these as attacks on democracy, on attacks of local decision making, uh, attacks on the environment, like huge, massive, massive, massive environmental attacks uh, in, a, in, a, in a time where it's fucking 25 degrees in southern Ontario in no fucking November. I mean, this is just so horrifying and weird. But anyway, and like th- this is all coming from the same logic. It's logic that wants to see the poorest racialized women workers in the educational system have the boots put to their neck while the richest piece of shit that just buy and buy and buy and exploit the land uh, are given everything that they want. And that's that doesn't serve the interest of of anybody other than those fucking pieces of shit. And those pieces of shit are in such the minority. They're such the minority that they know the only way that they can get what they want. And Ford knows the only way that he can get them what they want is through these increasingly authoritarian pieces of legislation or, or, or tactics. And so they will get worse. And so if you have not talked to your neighbors about Doug Ford, if you have not talked to your fucking friends or church groups or, 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 or language groups or whatever about what is what Ford is doing, I mean, now is the time because it's going to just get way worse from here. 